Today's podcast is brought to you by Echo. Echo works as a mobile-first point-of-care ultrasound workflow designed to allow you to manage all aspects of your POCUS with ease. The HIPAA-compliant cloud-based interface can quickly be accessed on your phone, tablet, or computer. This allows you to review scans, assign providers, and document billing codes all from the patient's room. It integrates with your existing ultrasounds and EMR so you can work more efficiently. Find out more at echo.inc slash echo dash works. That's E-X-O dot I-N-C slash E-X-O dash works. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratt, joined by my good buddy J.A. Jacob Avila. Jacob, what's up, brother? Hey, man. How's it going? It's going pretty swell. Hey, can you tell us about a cool case to kick us off? This case is entitled Stellate Ganglion Nerve Block by Point-of-Care Ultrasonography for Treatment of Refractory Infarction-Induced Ventricular Fibrillation. I actually podcasted about this exact topic back in like, I don't know, I feel like it was 2017 or something like that, where it was like kind of first introduced. This is something that is in the cardiology literature as like a last-ditch effort. But here's a case where they actually did it. So this case is a 65-year-old male who had a STEMI, pre-hospital STEMI, basically EMS found it. They co after arrival to the ED. The patient had refractory V-fib and they tried everything. We're talking multiple defibrillations. They even tried dual sequential defibrillation. They tried all of the medicines, amio, mag, esmolol, as well as presumably regular ACLS stuff. Then they did a left stellate ganglion block. Basically, this patient had been dead, right? They tried everything and they did this stellate ganglion block. And after one more round of CPR, the patient had a pulse, tried following commands. They did a cath afterwards. They put in two stents in his LAD and he had full neurologic recovery after this. They basically saved this guy's life with a very niche procedure that honestly, I have no idea how anybody would do this without ultrasound. It's interesting. They basically identify this stellate ganglion block. It's between like the carotid and the esophagus. It's in that very small kind of like space right there. It's right next to the chesagnix. <laughs> Chase Anyx. Sounds French. This is, it's it's not an, it's, I'm so sorry. It sounds French. Tubercle on C6 and they move down to C7. They identify the longest. Chesagnon. <laughs> That's right. They identify the longest coli muscle and they inject underneath the prevertebral fascia. So sweet block, sweet case, and stoked that they published it. Yeah, that's a good reminder because you see with those cases like every couple of years, but you know we're not doing them with any frequency. So always good to refresh yourself right. on that so you can maybe save a life. Agreed. Now on to the main event. We're going to talk about an article called Point of Care Ultrasonography Assisted Nasogastric Tube Placement in the Emergency Department, a Randomized Controlled Trial. What? This is awesome. That's this amazing. This is in the European Journal of Emergency Emergency Medicine, July 2022. Now, nasogastric tubes are commonly performed for many different things, and they're kind of painful to your patient, so you hope that you don't have to do it too many times. And traditionally, you put the tube in, or maybe your nurses or somebody else puts it in for you if you're lucky, and then you confirm it in the stomach or post-pyloric or wherever you want it with an x-ray. Now, the only problems with x-ray are that sometimes you have to repeat the x-ray, and that means you have to call them back and forth and back and forth till you get it in there because it can be tricky in some people. And ultrasound is a potential solution to some of these issues because you can actually see the esophagus and maybe you can confirm that the tube's going in in real time and then you wouldn't have to worry about the x-ray. So 
cool idea, and these authors really wanted to investigate it well, so they did a randomized control trial. One thing I thought that was funny from the introduction of this one, though, they they do a, a kind of exact, not exaggerate, maybe it's, it seemed just a, a little bit dramatic about some of the complications that they call common, <laughs> such as, they say, like they that. said common, <laughs> yeah, they're like, and you, we all know that anytime <laughs> you do an NG, it, they can have right atrial placement, intracranial placement, or death, so obviously we need to do it right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in all seriousness, yeah, that, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, those are case reports. They, it can happen. I think it's pretty rare, yeah. at least in my experience, unless you're doing something a little different. But yeah, so it's it's a serious thing, and we'd love to not traumatize our patients any more than is medically necessary. So. I think this article is trying to figure out how good is nasogastric tube placement guided by ultrasound. So Jacob, tell us more. So what they were trying to figure out is basically comparing this ultrasound placement versus no ultrasound at all. Their inclusion criteria were greater than 18 years old, required an NG tube, obviously. And then they had some, I think, pretty reasonable exclusion criteria. If they already had tubes there, recent nasal or oral surgeries, if they suspected esophageal trauma, the patient could not consent, and they did not obtain the reference standard x-ray. Those were all exclusion criteria as well. Now, with regards to the design, this was a prospective, open-label, randomized controlled superiority trial. And then they included patients in either POCUS or the control group, and they randomized them with that kind of normal envelope kind of randomization. You know, they just randomly generated, and then they pick the envelope for whoever is going to do what. So exciting. Now, with the POCUS group, what they did is they identified the esophagus, and then they held the probe stationary, and then they placed the NG tube. What they were looking for is they were looking to see if they saw a shadow appear within the esophagus to confirm placement, because normally the esophagus, it's collapsed, so there's not going to be really a whole lot of air in it as long as the patient's not actively swallowing. Now, what I like about this is they also had some secondary things that they looked for. For instance, they measured the time from setting up the ultrasound machine to the appearance of the shadow using a stopwatch, which is great, right? Right? Because that's one of the things that we hear is like, oh yeah, like they'll sound it like adds a little bit of time because it has to be set up. But this actually included that in the actual timing, which I really appreciated. Now for the gold standard, both arms, the ultrasound and the non-ultrasound arm had chest radiography for confirmation, like to, you know, it's their gold standard. And their primary outcome was going to be accuracy of the POCUS guided NG tube insertion and some secondary outcomes, which we'll talk about in a bit. Now, there was a single person who did all the ultrasounds. It was a PGY2 emergency medicine resident. And they did have a, I think, a perfectly adequate training regimen before having. Presumably, this person knew about ultrasound, was already an ultrasound advocate if they're doing this study. But what they did is they identified the normal esophagus in 25 patients. They had identified a nasogastric tube that had already been placed in another 25 patients. And then they used the ultrasound to basically do the study in 25 patients as their training. So the, the person who did this had 75 esophageal scans, which I think is perfectly adequate education. Now they used a linear transducer and they placed it at the level of the cricoid cartilage. I like that they described the esophagus as a cauliflower-like structure. Now, 
As far as placement, as we kind of like mentioned, they looked, they used the linear transducer, placed it lateral, left and right. Most of the time they found it on the left side though. And they placed it just anterior to the C6 vertebral body, which is very similar to our stellate ganglion block case report that we talked about. That's so funny. Yeah, this is like a rare view that you get clinically, but in our case, you can get this view to do a stellate ganglion block and also a good spot to find the esophagus. Let's get into the results. So they ended up enrolling 118 patients. So 60 in the control. Which is awesome, by the way. Yeah, good one. I mean, that's a lot, right? I feel like that's a lot. Yeah, that's a good amount. For sure. And 58 in the POCUS group, 60 in control, nice and balanced. Now, interestingly, almost 50% of their patients were intubated. They had a pre-planned subgroup analysis for intubated patients. Because as you can imagine, if your airways already has a tube in it, that may change how it goes when you put in a nasogastric tube. So that was kind of smart of them to think about. Now, their primary outcome, accuracy of POCUS-guided nasogastric tube placement. In the POCUS group, they had a sensitivity of 96.5%, and they had an accuracy of 94.3%. In the control group, sensitivity 88%, and accuracy of 86%. Now, one thing to point out in the sensitivities, there is some overlap in their confidence intervals. So Mm -hmm. we will talk about that in a little bit. You may also have noticed that I did not tell you the specificity and I did not tell you. Why didn't you, Mike? Well, I mean, Mike, how can you calculate the positive predictive value and the accuracy? I'm just confused. How can you calculate that without the specificity? Look, I put a lot of time trying to figure out this real mystery because they <laughs> list they list the specificity as not calculable or not, not able to be reported. And it was boggling my mind why they could only calculate the sensitivity, the accuracy, and the positive predictive value. And I'll save you the time that I went through trying to figure this out, and I'm not 100% sure I got it. If you look at how all those things are calculated, the only data point that seems to be not measured or not used is the true negatives. And if they Hmm. don't, uh, so my guess is that they just, the way they defined the study that it was impossible to get a true negative, essentially. So I think that that may be why they couldn't do all the other calculations, but I did reach out to the authors, haven't heard back. And so if there is a solution to this, then we'll update it on our website post. But otherwise, we'll just have to make do with what we, we have. Kind of like emergency medicine. We make do with what we got. So some other outcomes to talk about. The mean number of attempts. POCUS group had 1.19, whereas the control had 1.8. Also, it saved some time. POCUS group, 4.3 minutes. The control group, 228 minutes. That's almost four hours. Just a little bit of a time difference. Surprisingly, there was also a higher failure rate in the control group. In the POCUS group, it was 1.8%. In the control group, 11.7%. So that's kind of crazy. I don't quite understand why that is, but it's impressive nonetheless. We talked about their intubated subgroups, and it turns out that when you look at the non-intubated patients, it's actually pretty similar to the control. And when you look Mm -hmm. at the first attempt success, it's much better in the POCUS group in the intubated subgroup. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get get that. I just wonder like what, like why, like why is it so dramatic 
Like, and it's interesting because like, I'm obviously a huge ultrasound proponent, but this is insane. I mean, you went from 45% first pass success to 82% first pass success. Like that's huge. Yeah. And actually I, that makes me a little uncomfortable about this study, honestly, because Mm -hmm. this is like surprisingly good benefit that it was a secondary outcome. First of all, this wasn't their primary outcome. So we have to be a little bit cautious in, in making big assumptions based on this, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense. I can't connect why using ultrasound would reduce the number of times you do it and increase your success. Unless I don't understand something about their protocol of what decided when they were going to retry or or assume right. failure. Maybe there's something behind the scenes that they didn't write out that made it so that there was it was easier to fail in the control group. Agreed. And and that, I mean that's an important component, right? I mean we we love ultrasound, but we always have to make sure that we're not. I don't know. It's a tool, right? I mean there's times where it works, and this study seems like it works amazingly. But also some of the stuff on here is just I don't know. It's just interesting, right? Yeah. I mean it's awesome. And and all we're saying is this looks really good, and you got to be a little skeptical when things look too good. So let's just confirm these in another study, then we'll all be happy. The strengths from this study, it's randomized, controlled, prospective design, novel use for ultrasound yes. without much prior data. So this, we needed this study. They did a great power analysis and they got a good number of patients. The limitations, we discussed some of these already. This takes a little bit of extra training. You got to know where to find the esophagus and what it looks like when there's a tube in there. And then there are some questions about the statistics and how they were performed and what they did behind the scenes with their protocol that made it so they couldn't calculate some of those things. And lastly, I'll just mention again that the confidence intervals did cross. And what that means, and this was for their primary outcome, the sensitivity for the control and the POCUS had crossing 95% confidence intervals doesn't necessarily mean that they were not significantly different, but it does cast doubt on the fact that the POCUS is definitely superior. Any other thoughts on it, Jacob? No, no, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And what I like about ultrasound in general, the way that research is going, is that we're starting to get into things that are not necessarily life-saving, right? This is not like identifying a PE in an unstable patient. This is not identifying pneumoperitoneum, but this is something that matters to the patient. I mean, going from, you know, 1.8 attempts to 1.1 attempts is important. And first-pass success is important to the patient, even though it's not saving lives. And so I like that this data is coming out and I hope we see more studies like this. Yeah, definitely. And for having a randomized controlled trial with measuring this intervention, I kind of wish they had actually made the primary outcome something more patient-centered in this study as opposed to just the diagnostic test characteristics. But, you know, this is a good start. So to summarize the study, prospective randomized controlled trial, 118 patients requiring a nasogastric tube comparing POCUS to a standard blinded placement. It appeared as though POCUS was very accurate for this placement and outperformed the blind technique based on the statistics that they reported. So the take-home points are that esophageal POCUS for nasogastric tube placement appears to be accurate to confirm placement. A little bit unclear the calculations of these test characteristics, and that does make me question the veracity of the exact numbers of everything else they calculated, but it did seem to be pretty good based on these numbers. Lastly, POCUS for nasogastric tube placement may still be used in select patients, but you probably shouldn't rely too heavily upon it until we get some more evidence confirming these 
pretty good results. So show me the data. Thank you authors for doing this really cool work. We appreciated reading about it and I hope you continue to do that in the future. And listeners, thanks for being there for us. We appreciate you sticking around for another episode. You can always go to ultrasoundgel.org to find out more. Until then, we will talk to you later. Yeah, I, I mean, it looks like an esophagus to me. I don't know. Like, I don't know how to describe it, but the esophagus, it's like a little, a little squishy, tubey thingy.